Good evening. Welcome to Dialogue, a podcast of the 100th anniversary of the Lenten preaching series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church here in Memphis. I'm Paul McLean, Associate Director of Calvary, and our guests tonight are Barbara Brown Taylor, Episcopal priest, acclaimed preacher, as we all saw today at noon, an author, Emerita Butman Professor of Religion at Piedmont College, and a working farmer alongside her husband, Ed, in rural Northeast Georgia. <laughs> and Rabbi David Wolpe, the Max Webb Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, author of eight books, and also a teacher at a number of universities, including UCLA, Hunter College, Pepperdine, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and his next adventure will be to serve as visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School. Barbara, when we reached out to you as a longtime friend of Calvary and asked you whom we should invite in addition to yourself to this special anniversary series, you gave us only one name, Rabbi David Wolpe. And before tonight, you had never met him, as it's I understand. It's true. <laughs> And you said, I want to preach the same week as him, and I think you were delighted that we arranged for you to be in conversation as well. Why David Wolpe? I've thought a lot about that. And all I know is you've been in my air for a long, long, long time. In fact, when your name, you think, I, I, when your name came up, I looked at an old, old book I wrote called When God is Silent, and I said, I'm positive I read your book to get ready for my book, and there you are. 1992, in speech and in silence, mm -hmm. the Jewish quest for God. I was blown away by that book. So that was a long time ago that this came out. Then I began um, teaching world religions, and you made the news a lot in, in all kinds of ways, both with op-ed columns in newspapers I read and with articles I, I actually shared with students, you know, to talk about varieties in Judaism and that at any rate, then I found out today he's the model for a detective rabbi in a best-selling mystery and that he's a producer of a Hollywood movie. Yeah. So all I have going for me right now is that he was in fifth grade when I graduated high school. Yes. <laughs> so to be fair, not a producer, but, but what happened was, okay, this is what it is to be a rabbi in Los Angeles. <laughs> So, I was at the religious school's Purim play, all right? A little holiday play, all the kids were in costume, I was sitting there, and the guy sitting next to me, whom I've known for many years, said, so... Rabbi, what are, you, what are you working on? And I said, I'm writing a book about King David. He said, oh, that sounds interesting. Send it to me when you're done. I'd love to read it. I said, fine. I sent it to him. Literally, this is what happened. Three weeks later, he called me and he said, you know that book about King David you sent me? I said, yes. He goes, I sold it to Warner Brothers. Oh. I said, you did what? <laughs> he said, I sold it to Warner Brothers. They're going to make a movie. Mm -hmm. So that was years ago. They still have not made a movie. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> but in Los Angeles, you know, if your book doesn't get bought by a studio, then they kick you out of the pulpit. I don't know if you know that. So <laughs> it's more or less obligatory. But anyway, Barbara's work has become and as we were discussing before, even more relevant to me because I'm retiring at the end of June from the pulpit and she wrote deeply, empathetically and perceptively about what it is to, uh, to need to leave a pulpit. 
Mm-hmm. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, leaving church. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What a leaving church. Remarkable book. David, tell us, and, and you mentioned uh, movies. One, another movie was made a couple of years ago entitled The Walk, and it, it's from a story in your book, Why Faith Matters. And can you tell us, at least tell us that story? Am I allowed to, to like the story better than the movie? Is that okay? Because um, so, the story was based on, 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 on something that happened to my father, which is probably why I'm here by, by chain of, of events. So my father was, first of all, when he was growing up, he was going to be a concert pianist, but he lived down the street from Leonard Bernstein. And so because Leonard Bernstein was a great musical genius, at a certain point, he decided he should do something else. Um, And at 11, his father died. And in the Jewish tradition, when a parent dies, the child every single day is supposed to go Actually, you're supposed to do it more than once a day, but at least once a day to go and say the morning prayer on behalf of the parent. And the morning prayer has to be said with at least 10 people present. You don't say it by yourself. You have to have a community around you. So people go to synagogue to say it. And every morning, my father, who was an only child, used to walk alone in Boston to go to synagogue. And one day, the ritual director whose name was Mr. Einstein, no relation to the other Einstein, but showed up at my father's door and said, I walk there, you walk there, why should we both walk alone? Let's walk together. So all through the Boston winter and the spring and the summer, he walked with my father and helped sort of bring him back to life. Many years later, when my oldest brother was born, my parents now lived in, uh, in, actually in the South. They lived in, uh, my oldest brother was born in Camp Lejeune. My father was in the uh, Marines. He drove back to, went back to Boston to visit his mother and my mother's parents. And he said, you know, I want to show Mr. Einstein my firstborn son. And so he drove to Mr. Einstein's house and my mother remembers he started crying Mm -hmm. because it was about four miles away from where his house was. And he realized he'd walked every single morning just to pick him up and bring him to synagogue. And, and first of all, it's a story of genuinely disinterested great goodness. I mean, he, wasn't, there was, he didn't even tell anyone. He didn't even know no one was going to. But, but the other part that I find very moving that actually couldn't have made it into the movie because it hadn't happened yet is my brother, who is a professor at Emory, was in a conference in Florida And this older man came up to him and said, I think we have a connection. I'm Mr. Einstein's son. So like the ripples of goodness don't end. Absolutely. Well, David, speaking of loss, nearly 25 years ago, you wrote Making Loss Matter, Creating Meaning in Difficult Times, in which you explore a variety of forms of loss, even including the loss of faith. Yeah. And we've had, I've shared with David that we had two recent study groups on the book, one here at Calvary over uh, six weeks in our church library on Wednesday nights, and one at Tresvent Manor that we concluded today in their chapel. And it's really spoken to a lot of people. And I'll share, I read the book this past summer, a year after my mom's death, and it was really spoke to me at a time that I needed that. And it's a book that's made a lot of difference, I think, in a lot of folks' lives now being shared here in Memphis. Uh, your wife, uh, Eileen, at the time was diagnosed with cancer as you were working on the book, and you said that completely changed the way you wrote it. Can you tell kind of what you had in mind and, and how the personal experience of loss of something being close to you changed that direction of the book? So 
I think, I mean, having now also gone through cancer a couple of times myself mm -hmm. and watching someone you love go through cancer, the difference between speaking about something theoretically and actually having it crash into your life. I mean, I have people all the time who come into my office and say, this happened, why me? And part of me wants to say, only a little part of me, wants to say to them, did you not know that bad things happened before this happened? Mm -hmm. Did you not have, have you not understood that there are wars and, and disease and hunger throughout human history? Did this only occur to you yesterday when you were diagnosed? But of course they knew all that, mm -hmm. but they didn't know what it would feel like when it happened to them. And, and it is astonishing how different the world is when you see it feelingly. And so I realized that most of what I'd written wasn't, <laughs> wasn't mm -hmm. true in mm -hmm. like the deepest sense it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that it was false, but it wasn't mm -hmm. informed by any kind of real deep sadness mm -hmm. that that was. Um, which is, by the way, how the book that you were kind enough to mention about In Speech and In Silence came out too, because my mother had a stroke and became aphasic. Mm -hmm. So when you see pain or feel pain, it, it just deepens you. Absolutely. And Barbara, mm -hmm. you, you wrote mm -hmm. very candidly about loss in a very different way in the book David mentioned, leaving church, mm -hmm. uh, you know, losing, uh, losing one trajectory in your ministry and career and, and a vocational direction, and then going into a completely different direction and being a teacher of world religions. And I remember you speaking to a group at Berkeley Divinity School at Yale. I was there when you, leaving church had come out, and one of our students asked, uh, the cover had a dove, or had a dove going out of a cage. Mm, bad and, choice, and, really <laughs> bad choice. What am I? And, and, uh, and what, one of my classmates asked, said, is that dove represent you, Barbara? And she, you said, honey, do I look like a beautiful white bird that's a symbol of peace? <laughs> and we all got a, a big laugh out of that. And then, but then you told us what it, what you asked us, what does the dove represent in our tradition? The Holy Spirit mm -hmm. uh, among breath, fire. And, and uh, yeah, it was really about the Holy Spirit being released too yeah. in, out into the world from our church. But I wanted to, and I think the Holy Spirit has a relationship, I think, to, to loss in our journey as well and, and mm -hmm. reshaping us or reforming us as we we're maybe there's some release that comes during loss. But I wondered what's your journey with loss and how has that affected you vocationally, mm -hmm. spiritually, and otherwise? Mm -hmm. I'll start by going right back to you and saying I wrote a book called Learning to Walk in the Dark. Mm -hmm. And it came out and then the universe said, let's see how well you learned that. And mm -hmm. Things happened in my life, too, that had me go back now and see that I was giving advice I'd never had to take. Right. And so there's a way in which you tell the best stories when you've come through, right? And mm -hmm. I hadn't come through yet. So mm -hmm. so there's that. And, and the, you know, I, I'm trying really hard late in life to think of loss as change, inevitable change. And sometimes it's it's nothing but loss. But mm -hmm. I've had the opportunity, really, to step up for people I love dearly, a mother, a father, a sister, and end up being the person who helped them get into hospice and saw them through end of life. And those are much more poignant losses for me than earlier ones, like the loss of a vocational dream of mm -hmm. the way it would turn out, or earlier the loss of friends and schools as we moved over and over and over again. Um, but I do think that taught me 
says someone who thinks she's come through, ha, 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 mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, that right now is precious and deserves all the attention I can give it, mm-hmm. and that clinging is futile, and it's even um, disrespectful of, of the nature of life, which mm-hmm. is precious and fragile as grass, as we've all learned but have to learn over and over again. So I end up being grateful no, I'm not grateful at all for the losses, but I'll accept what, what they gave me. They left some gifts on the door. Yeah, yeah. well, you had a powerful sermon today, and uh, I shared with the folks at Tresman asking about what the future of faith is. The future of faith is tomorrow. Maybe the future of faith is now. <laughs> and uh, it really, really resonated with us. And, uh, you know, the, the theme that we gave you both for, for the series is the future of faith that we gave all our speakers. And we wanted this 100th anniversary to be forward-looking, not to entirely backward-looking. And... Uh, in my own journey and the journeys of parishioners I've talked to recently, it seems that simply knowing about God, and as Barbara told us today, we use a lot of words to try to do that, uh, is an inadequate future. It just doesn't feel, resonate. More of us are wanting to know God and be known by God intimately. And I'm sensing more openness and longing for mystical encounters with God, mysticism really connected with service and compassion. And uh, Barbara, I loved what your friend, how your friend Judy described God in, in Holy Envy. Spirituality is the active pursuit of the God you didn't make up. <laughs> and I think so many times we do oh, try to great. make up God. Uh, are you feeling that longing for deeper connection with God too in your own life? And, and are you encountering that with others? And how are you encountering and being encountered by God in your own prayer life and spiritual and vocational journey? Actually, this has to do with a question you may still have in store, which is how has learning about Judaism made me a better Christian? Let's let's go to there. Well, I mean, nefesh, the whole idea of embodied spirituality. Because I'm Christian, I've been taught that Judeo-Christian tradition has got something missing in the middle, which is Greek. <laughs> so that there's a way in which Greek duality made it into the New Testament. And and I had a lot of palate cleansing to do from that. So the connection to God I seek um, is embodied because I'm an Episcopalian, it's sacramental. I've been taught from day one that you approach God through bread and wine mm-hmm. and oil and water and the laying on of hands and meals and blessings. And But my learning of Jewish teachings was like, oh, I always knew this was somewhere in here. So I live on a farm now, and that gives me more more God in a day than I can do much with. So I, I just every night apologize for having missed 90% of what was given to me. <laughs> and we'll, we'll circle back on that other question. I've got sure, more. sure. David, what, do, what is your sense of people longing to, to know God rather than know about God? And and also, as as Barbara expressed in her sermon, we've become a very wordy people. The church is very wordy, but the whole society is so wordy. And she disclosed how many self-published books there are, how many blogs there are. It was mind-boggling. Yeah. And, and how I talked with a retiree recently who said, we've all become triage artists in terms of, and this is a retiree saying, and sorting through the material, what's right. important, what's not. Uh, how are you finding God in the midst of that? So I'm, I, I have a prejudice for words um, <laughs> because, because, I mean, think about the Jewish tradition and, and the Christian tradition. When you go into a synagogue, 
what you look at is a book mm -hmm. because Judaism is a tradition of words because mm -hmm. we don't have a perfect life. We have a sacred book. Having said that, what you're saying is absolutely the case, which is people are also tired of the avalanche of words. And I think the way that I would describe it is we talked about my niece is a rabbi and she's not the same kind of rabbi that I am. She doesn't get up in front of hundreds of people and give a speech. She sings, she chants, she does more direct in nature. She brings her congregation out to nature, not to a large building like my congregation. Mm -hmm. And I think all of those things are partly, for at least the Jewish community, they're partly sociological. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we had to prove that we could have large synagogues because there were all these large churches and we wanted to show we belong too. <laughs> really? Yes. But that's not the issue anymore. Now the question is, so we have a nice big building, but how do we connect to God? Mm -hmm. And I think that for almost all of us, community is really important, but so is, I mean, I believe that on a farm you encounter God more than you do in in the concrete. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a return to the natural, the mystical, the, the musical, the things that are not, mm -hmm. that are not fixed yeah. in religious life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, as both of you are, are gifted writers and as writers and wordsmiths, uh, with this call that Barbara seemed to be issuing today, and I think you are too, uh, for, Maybe we are too wordy, but how do we? How do you, as wordsmiths, become exercise precision, become more concise? Uh, we have several folks who are involved in our series who are poets who do a wonderful job of that, who are so creative in that. But for those of us who probably prefer prose, do we all need to become Hemingway? <laughs> what do you think, Barbara? What and how does this all this overload of words going to affect your writing? How about not writing another book? Okay. <laughs> that, that could be my contribution. Is right. a little, it, in some ways, it has made language more precious to me. Mm -hmm. So I, even when I was teaching, found myself requiring 500-word essays mm -hmm. instead of five pages of things. And I have received more and more books of poetry that are almost haiku. So the, I guess the people I continue to love, the books get shorter, but the language gets richer, mm -hmm. um, not dense rich, just every word is loved into being on the page. And that seems to me like a helpful consequence of so much, so much words. But that was, you know, the other part of the sermon was just about big's not always better and fancy's not always better than plain. So I think yeah. Um, yeah. language can take all kinds of forms right. than a, one more book in print. Yeah, I love what you used uh, about the spice that we can bring mm -hmm. to our language uh, mm -hmm. and the seasoning. Mm -hmm. David, what about you as a writer? Um, how does For this... about over 30 years, I've written a column once a week that is always 200 words or less. Uh, so, yeah. and you just keep whittling away and whittling away. And my sermons have actually over the years gotten shorter. Um, they were never really long, but now the, almost always under 10 minutes. Um, not tomorrow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it won't be much more than that. It won't be much more than that. Um, but, uh, but I mean, you fly all the way from Los Angeles. You can't do it for 10 minutes. I mean, it's just not. Uh, but... But And that's because I do think that, in part, our attention spans have 
been truncated by all the, not just by the fact that, that social media is always urging us to pay attention, but also by the volume of things, as you said, that, that are also worthy things mm -hmm. to see. I mean, there on, on YouTube is like every, every, you can look for a hundred years ago and see someone reading, you can see Yeats reading his own poetry. That's pretty cool, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm so, mm -hmm. with that, if you're going to make a claim on people's attention, I think that you have to do it thinking that you have something worth saying and not overindulging your stay. You know, mm -hmm. right. That's helpful because I think the burden is on the the reader too, right? It's yeah. not just on the writer because I think right. the the overflow of language um, really tempts me to omnipotence. You know, to think I can know everything. I mean, my problem, the reason I'm not on social media, is not because I think it's bad. It's because I would never come out. Right. I would yeah. never come out. When YouTube became a thing, I think Ed came into the study at about 2 a.m. in the morning while I was watching. I don't even know what I was watching. How to change your watch batteries or break into a house or something. And, and I was just mesmerized, you know. So, so it was up to me to learn how to chill and, and leash this thing and, and realize, you know, start thinking about time. Time's limited. How do I want to spend it? So I was... I was at the, I had a layover between, uh, I went, flew into Dallas and then from Dallas to Memphis. And I was sitting at a restaurant in the Dallas airport and I was reading the Times Literary Supplement and this guy, the waiter came up to me and said, what is that? Is that, is that like print on a page? And he was very funny. He says, I never see that anymore. And I thought, you know, you have, yes, because you have to actually put your phone aside to read a book. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 And Barbara, you alluded to this this question I shared with you earlier, and, and I'm, I'm, uh, your book, Holy uh, Envy, obviously explored your journey alongside uh, your students, not only to learn about, but to, but to actually experience the major world religious traditions, experience practices. And to paraphrase a quote from the Dalai Lama, who, uh, when people would encounter him and talk about how they were so drawn to the Tibetan monastic life, he would say, that's all well and good, but I'd rather you go home and be a better Jew or right. be a better Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and to paraphrase that quote, how have your deeper encounters with Judaism and Jews made you a better, I'm going to say this differently after your sermon, a better you, <laughs> <laughs> both singular and plural, who uh -huh. identifies as a Christian? I could go on and on about this, so I made myself limit myself to three, and okay. I've already given away one or two. But I have a friend who said also, everyone needs a second faith. They admire, they envy to keep them honest in their own. And that's certainly the way that what I've learned about honoring um, Judaism has been like a sacred humiliation in terms of Christian arrogance about mastering another tradition, you know, to, to learn about, well, to read A.J. Levine, the misunderstood Jew, Jesus, which sent me back to read New Testament scriptures in an entirely different way and then to buy a Jewish annotated New Testament so I could check things out, and then to buy a Torah commentary or two when I'm working on First Testament passages, just the way in which it woke me up to the faithfulness to the text and also to see the bias you know, in, in the context, let me say, of the, the Second okay. Testament, and to be careful, careful, careful about the violence Mm -hmm. that that context has caused. You know, what happens when a book written by a very small minority ends up in the hands of the dominant faith on earth? What happens when you've got a victim mentality 
in a huge, powerful group, very scary business. So, so the third, you know, the third learning for me beyond the Greek piece that rescuing me from some duality and the piece about rethinking the scriptures I hold dear. Um, and the third, um, was reminding me that loyalty to the covenant does not often make communities bigger, but smaller and tighter, and that there's a, a cost to that, that bigger and better maybe doesn't have a clue about. So I don't know how that sounds to you. That sounds, I'm very grateful to hear you say all that. Um, and uh, I, I think, by the way, that because my first response to this is going to, to talk about this, the hostility between Jews and Christians, one of the ways to think about this is it was a family quarrel. Mm -hmm. It was a family quarrel that then got put into sacred scripture. That's right. And family quarrels are always ugly. They're always ugly. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that then it got outside the family. And so people didn't understand that it was a family quarrel. And, and so this goes to the first thing that, that like, I think the Christian community should hear, um, but it wasn't my experience, it was my teacher's experience. I had a teacher, he was a wonderful, wonderful man, very learned, his name was Eliezer Slomovic, and he was in a labor camp in Eastern Europe, and he had a very difficult life, and, and he came to the United States, and he was teaching at what was then called the University of Judaism in Los Angeles. They were having an interfaith conference in Berkeley, and the president of the university asked him to go. And he said, no, I'm not going to an interfaith conference. He said, why not? And this was the gentlest, sweetest man you could imagine. He goes, when I grew up, we were taught that when you walk in front of a church, you spit because they all want to kill you. That's what they want. They want to kill you. And so you don't have any. And, and the president said, you're in America now. I want you to go. So he went because the president of the university told him to go. The pastor who opened the meal that opened the conference said, I am now going to begin this meal the way our Lord Jesus Christ would have begun the meal. Baruch Adonai min And he said the Hebrew prayer for bread, at which point Eliezer started to cry because he couldn't imagine a world in which that could happen. And I, don't, I think that the first thing we have to do is realize how different the world is that we live in, thank God, from any of the world that our ancestors lived in, where I wouldn't be talking to you in a church. So the first thing that I think I've learned from Christianity is that you should never assume that things can't change and people can't change. Mm -hmm. No matter how, I mean, it, it's just, it's not true. I mean, I remember the day before the Soviet Union collapsed, nobody thought the Soviet Union would collapse. We thought it would be there forever. And all of a sudden, the next day it was gone. It was, gone. It was like unbelievable. That has its own problems. But, but <laughs> just, I mean, you learn that, that there are, like the human capacity to be different is remarkable, which is one of the reasons, by the way, why I'm, I, it's also constitutional. Every time someone says that democracy is doomed or America is doomed or we've never been so polarized or things are worse than they've ever been, I always think, no, not at all. <laughs> remember the Civil War? Remember the, the 60s? Remember, I mean, it's like we really do have the, we have an, an, a remarkable capacity to change and to forget. Now, let me just say one, just one thing that I think Christianity, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the Christian presence for, as a Jew, is I know this might sound strange to it, it sounds strange to many Christians, but Judaism in America in particular 
has become not God-centered. And the people who talk most about God in the Jewish community are Christians who've converted to Judaism. Hmm. And that's because what Judaism has become is peoplehood, Israel, anti-Semitism, in other words, communal concerns. And the faith question is really, really on the back burner. And I always say to my congregation, like, guys, we're the ones who like introduce this idea to the world. Why don't we talk about it more, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but we don't, um, we don't. If I get in front of a congregation and I say, this is how we might think of thinking about God, I won't get half the attention that I will get if I say, let me tell you what's going on with anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Because people's fear, you know, our fear trigger is much, much stronger than our faith trigger. Mm. And so mm. the Christian world's emphasis on God is a great boon mm. to the Jew, I think, to the Jewish tradition these days. Mm. That's, that's something I've learned, yeah. I, I did not know that. And one of our uh, Christian mystics that we love in the Episcopal tradition, Evelyn Underhill, once mm -hmm. spoke to a group of clergy in England, and she's, she started her address, said, you know the most interesting thing about religion is God? <laughs> um, and I think it's helpful yes, to understand that uh, we're right. not the only tradition trying to yeah. recover that. Yeah. Um, uh, and David, one of your most recent books is about your namesake, David, yeah. and yeah. we talked about the movie rights a minute ago, and he's probably the most <laughs> complex figure in the Bible. And why does his story so speak to you? You've spent, you spent a lot of time with it, and what might his life and story say to us in the political and cultural times we're describing in which we live? So my interest, apart from the fact that who's whose namesake? He's my namesake. I'm his namesake. I don't remember which. <laughs> he had the name first. Um, so is why this person gets to be the progenitor of the Messiah. Whoever you think the Messiah is, the Messiah comes from David. And David is, is not an admirable character in most ways. I mean, in, you know, like the Bathsheba thing is really not good. Um, so, and, and remember that it's not, just, it's not just that he commits adultery. It's that he sends, it's one of the most cynical acts of cruelty imaginable. He sends her husband, Uriah, with a note in his hand that condemns him to death back to the front and, and gives it to Yoav, and it says, basically, put this guy where he's going to get killed. And Yoav, being a good soldier for David, does, and he gets killed. And then David gets to marry Bathsheba. And so I really wanted to explore why, and, and I come from a somewhat, I come to a somewhat different conclusion, I think. It's not a conclusion, a suggestion. A lot of people say because David was faithful to God, he was never an idolater like most of the kings of Israel were at one time or another, which is certainly true. The fact that he did what is called in Hebrew tshuva, repentance. Because remember when Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man, he doesn't do what every other ancient king would have done, which is just take Nathan out back and cut off his head. So there's that. But at the end of the book, I talk about the fact that David is the most complete human being imaginable. What does it mean that David's after God's own heart? And by complete, I mean complete. I don't mean good. I mean, he's a father, he's a son, and he's portrayed in all these ways as a sibling, as a poet, as a musician, as, as by the way, something very rare in ancient times, a man who listens to women. 
because David, listen, Abigail gives the longest speech of a woman in the Hebrew Bible, and David doesn't interrupt her. It's remarkable. And then he changes his behavior based on what she says. And he is, a, uh, he's, I mean, he writes Psalms, but he also is a warrior. He also is a leader in battle. He is also a leader of men. He is also a sinner. He's also a penitent. I mean, he's everything, everything. So if the Messiah, in some sense, is supposed to be the summation of what human beings are, then it makes sense that you would come from David as opposed to a partial character, mm. um, someone who doesn't know darkness, who doesn't know the shadow side. Mm. David is really a full human being. And the book is short. It's just like 200. Sorry. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it was part, Yale University Press put out a series of brief lives Jewish lives, they're brief lives, so I did the David one, anyway. But, uh, but David is an endlessly, endlessly fascinating character, and in the Hebrew Bible, we know more about him than anyone else by far, by far. Barbara, what's your take on, on King David, or what other characters from the Bible and other faith traditions are if have been touchstones for you? Yeah, I'm going to call David Covered, okay? Covered. <laughs> okay. Read, read the book. So okay. I've always been drawn to the bit players, you know, the people way out on mm -hmm. the edges of the story. When the when the camera is focused there, I want to know what's going on over there. <laughs> and And I'm especially, another thing I envy about Judaism is the or the teachings is the concept of righteous Gentiles, you know, that you can offer blessings to those who do not belong to your tradition. And it's interesting to me how quick, you know, we are to baptize those who come and deliver their blessings and leave. Uh, many of you have only to think of the, the three wise men or the magi, you know, who show up in Christmas pageants and nobody mentions they were Persian, right. you know, yeah. priests who came and, gave their gifts. And if you read the translation of the Greek, they didn't worship Jesus, they honored him. And then they went back home and resumed being magi. And I love that. You know, as much as I love Melchizedek, who comes out of nowhere in Genesis yeah. 14 and brings bread and wine and a blessing to Abram, you know, before the news is out yep. that, that God's name is I am. So, so I, I have a penchant for the blessing of these sacred texts on outsiders who come and deliver their blessings and are wished well on their way, you know, with no effort to say that there's only this way, but thank you. And, and go back to where you came from and tell the story. And there's a lot more of that in our text than we think there is. That's beautiful. If we look. That's very beautiful. Barbara, where, where all are you finding and seeing light, love, and hope these days? <laughs> Ed Taylor, my husband, who's sitting right there. He's, he is my pal day and night. So truly, truly, um, it is uh, a long companionship with him that has enriched all those nouns you just pulled out. But I will say that every day, again, brings more more things to wonder and be curious about and grieve over and love and hold up and say a blessing over. And, and there is something about aging that um, makes one more aware of that, that there's no shortage. There's only the shortage of my attention and my time to do it. So um, it would be a harder question to say, where do I not find okay. those things? Okay. David, what about you? Where are you seeing light, love, and hope? Well, here. <laughs> um, but apart from being here, which is, is really true, I, I do see it all the time. 
I talk about in, in that book I, that people sometimes come to me and as I mentioned before, they say, you know, why me? Why did this terrible thing happen to me? But here's what people almost never say. I was born in the richest country in the world and my parents loved me, why me? And when I think about my own life, I think I have been like extravagantly blessed. And I, I tell, the, I, I remember years ago, I heard someone tell this parable about a teacher who went up to the whiteboard and he put a black dot in the middle and he said, what do you see? And they all said, I see a black dot. And he said, no, you don't. You see a huge whiteboard and a tiny black dot. Um, but we can have, like, we get a flat time. We go, I had a terrible day. But you woke up, you ate breakfast, you have a full stomach, you have a roof over your head, you have warmth. I mean, as, as Barbara said, like, we're, we really are so incredibly blessed. It's just a matter of reminding yourself how fortunate you are, not only compared to 99.9% .9 of all the human beings who ever lived, and, and a good percentage of the people who are alive, but just by any other standard, we're just so lucky and so blessed. And, and that doesn't make me feel guilty, mm -hmm. but it makes me feel responsible. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. It does. And it's, yeah, I, I think uh, I love that example of the white paper, and I've, I've seen that done in appreciative inquiry exercises mm. where to, to really look at what are what's working, what's what do we appreciate within a system, within a, our world, and I think that's important to take time to do that, and obviously gratitude is a big part of all so, our faith traditions. Also, I just want to say, like, because I, I was just telling someone this story, my daughter, who's getting her PhD in autism, Hmm. And, and I said to her once when she was already working with teenagers, I said, like, why are you doing this? It seems so difficult to me to work with these kids. And she said, well, and she was in high school. So she was among girls and girls are mean in high school. I don't know if you know this, but <laughs> she said, she said, like, in, in contrast to my experience in high school, like, there's no malice in any of these kids. Mm -hmm. They may hurt people, but they don't mean to. Mm -hmm. And and so, and I said to her, what do you think they're missing? And she said, oh, dad, they're not missing anything. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's that spirit, like that belief that, that goodness is, in fact, what we're intended to be, makes me think, like, we'll get past the other stuff. Absolutely. That's, that gives us hope. That's yeah. Good. Absolutely. Well, Barbara, tell us what what's the next chapter for you in your vocational, spiritual, farming, otherwise journey? <laughs> I'm a woman of a certain age. <laughs> and, and I have begun to take seriously the challenge of being my age and of resisting productivity by the world's standards. Ah. And so I have found, interestingly, since I retired from full-time teaching, the question I get asked most often is, what are you working on? Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to come up with a non... I'm going to say something like, if I told you, I'd have to kill you, because that seems nicer than saying, my, my project right now is to resist having a project that I'm working on that, that would be impressive to you. You know, I have a lot of projects I'm working on, but you don't want to really know about the blue chip paint things in my guest bedroom because I want to welcome guests, you know, or that Vietnamese spring roll wrappers are really hard for me and I'm going to get it any minute now. But, but there are ways in which I think, again, let's, you know, bring up Shabbat that if there is a, a, a commandment about a seventh of every week being to rest in the presence of God without doing one thing to earn your way, why shouldn't there be a seventh of a human life that is given 
you know, to that as well, to rest in the presence of God and remember that I am not what I can produce. It's a very difficult challenge for a woman of a certain age, but it seems worth taking up. That's a, it's admirable. It's contrary. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> David, what about you? Tell us about your next chapter. So I, before I do, mm-hmm. I, I want to say that I was really struck by Barbara saying, a project that is impressive to you. Yeah. Because that's how we're trained. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're trained, like when you ask me what I'm working on, I have to say something that I know will impress you. And you mentioned that I'm going to Harvard Divinity School and don't think for a second that I don't like tell, say to people, oh, I'm going to Boston. <laughs> Waiting for them to say, oh really, and what are you doing in Boston? I, oh, well, <laughs> since you asked, I would not normally tell you this, but, and it's, and I know that this is about my ego and unworthy, mm-hmm. and, and it's so hard not to do that. We're you know, weird, yeah. do you know the best definition of humility ever is C.S. Lewis. He says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I think that's brilliant. It's like, so what project am I involved in that actually is not about me is what I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure out. And, and that has to do, I think, with how the world will change and what it is that I can do in the world when I'm not the rabbi of a synagogue all the time. Because being the rabbi of a synagogue or the pastor of a church or, or any it's simultaneously humbling and ego inflating because you are the most important person at every wedding, funeral, bar mitzvah. You're, I mean, if you give, I remember my father telling me, you can um, skimp on anything but a eulogy. Mm. He said, if you give a bad talk at a wedding, they're still married, but no one will forget what you said about their father when he died. So that impressed on me, like I have to, I have to get it right. Mm-hmm. And once you let that go and you recognize that all that stuff actually isn't really about you, mm-hmm. um, it changes, but that takes a lot of work and a lot of time. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what my next project is basically, but I mean, there's stuff I want to write and there's stuff I want to do, but, but the deeper, more important project we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being very candid about that and help taking us into a different way of framing that whole question. I, I think we so often ask people, what do you do? Is, and right. and uh, uh, one of our speakers, Omid Safi, challenged us, ask people, how is your heart today? Oh, I love that. Isn't that, isn't that great? Mm-hmm. We're at almost seven o'clock now, and I think what we'd like to do is turn it over to, to, to yeah. some of you to ask questions. And Heidi, I think, and uh, uh, Catherine or Robin will have a microphone. So please wait if you'd like to raise your hand and to ask a question. Remember that the first question is the hardest. <laughs> Once someone asks the first question, then other people start asking questions. So you have to be bold enough to ask the first question for the sake of, you know, the collective. I'm not used to being on podcasts. I am intrigued, and I can't put your book down about David. And what I would like to ask you about is the subtitle, The Divided Heart. Could you talk more about that, please? Yeah. Okay, so that's the, right, the subtitle of the book is The Divided Heart, and uh, someone who's very close to me as they were reading the manuscript kept writing, is this about you? Is this about you? Um, I think that what I, what you see in, 
I mean, the Bible, like everything else, is a mirror. And what you see in there is, in part, what you, who you are. And the characters you're drawn to are generally the characters who... And, and because, I'm, because I feel that in the world in lots of ways, I see in David that what I said before, that on the one hand, he really loves... Well, it never says that David loves in the Bible. It <laughs> says he is loved. But it never says he loves. Wow. But he he's shattered when he loses his son Avshalom, and he clearly evokes love from people, and he knows how to be a king, but at the same time submits himself at first to Saul. But there's so I, I, I guess it's what I was saying before. There's like there's no piece of the heart that David doesn't seem to have, and he doesn't feel to me like a perfectly integrated character. Like Moses, you know what Moses is going to be and what he's going to do. And Moses at every moment will take the path of justice and of defending Israel. And But David surprises you, really surprises you. David pretends to be loyal to the Philistine. I mean, David is like, you know, he's... He's duplicitous, he's faithful at the same time, he's poetic and he's brutal, he's divided. I think it's very, it's very, very hard to have fullness of heart and, and I identify with his not having it. Well, you call Jesus the son of David because the lineage in the New Testament goes from David to Jesus in 10 generations. Um, but I, I must say, of, of, of all the people sitting up here, I might be the least um, <laughs> likely to pronounce on Jesus. Uh, so oh, I don't I'm going to toss, toss that one over to... Uh, to um, so look, I, I wrote... I, for those of you who are interested, you, I'm sure you can find it online somewhere. Um, the only thing I ever really wrote about Jesus was I wrote an article about why Jews don't believe Jesus was the Son of God. So if you want to hear that, I can tell you. But if you want, if you want, uh, I mean, if you want a, a read of of Jesus's life and why Jesus would be identified with David, I I would turn it over to my colleagues. Uh, pass, Paul. You want to do that? <laughs> I will tell. You, I mean, just as you know, like, like murder mystery, the, it, it's really interesting to, to look at Jesus' brother James and to see how, because he was not a disciple. He's not the disciple mm -hmm. named James, but he's in the lineage. Mm -hmm. And that causes all kinds of problems, you know, for, for some people. But when, you know, part of the importance was perhaps this was a real deep wish to get Rome the hell out of there. Right. You know, and to be the Messiah who would yeah. who would bring things back, and so Son of David becomes hugely important to under you know undergird that hope that right. then passes to James at Jesus' yeah. death. So so that's you know murder mystery kind of stuff, but extremely interesting when you think about all that that means. And now I've got a whole new reason. Oh, to want to talk to people about Jesus' divided heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. I really want to start that conversation with somebody. That'd be great. Yeah. That's great. Other questions? I'm the kind of person who I, I don't like the historic creeds. So, uh, and so I don't care that the Christian church has for thousands of years said, these scriptures in the Tanakh are mm -hmm. our scriptures. 
I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go along with that just because it's been so long standing. A couple of years ago, I became friends for the first time with a Jewish person, sitting across a table, sharing a beer, and we were talking about the Tanakh, and, uh, I, and I said, well, in what sense are these my scriptures? And my friend said, they're not. Mm-hmm. But I need them, and they are a part of my, even though I don't receive it as authoritative, top-down, you know, canonization and um, all of that. For Christians, they are utterly important. Um, as someone who is working in uh, ecology, they are still so much like untapped even for their potential. So in what sense mm. are the Jewish scriptures my scriptures, mm. if they are? I mean, I'll go first only to tell you, I remember being at a Friday night Shabbat table with someone who was visiting from South Africa, a Jew who said, why do you read our book? <laughs> why, why do you preach on our book? And it wasn't a, it, it was just a bafflement on this person's part because you know, they were asking the same kind of thing that you were asking your friends. So want to talk so about why, this? Well, well, you're in a better position to answer his question. It's just a great question, isn't it? Like, it, it and, and there have been Christian movements that tried to eliminate. Oh, well, yeah. The and that's Bible. sure. And sure. And, and only choose one gospel right. and yeah. get every reference to Jesus right. Judaism out of that, right. you know, if at all possible. And I, and I love it that failed. So, I, I mean, the only thing that I would say to you is that, um, and I, I, I'm, no, I'm in no position to say this because I'm not a Christian, but it seems to me that, that Christianity is enriched by it. So why not? The only, the only Christian group that I have in this space any trouble with are the group that call themselves Jews for Jesus. Because for thousands of years, to be for Jesus means you're a Christian. And to say you're a Jew for Jesus is basically, a, to me, a marketing scam. It's like, oh, all these Jews, you can still be a Jew and believe in Jesus, when in fact you never could. That was the whole point of Jesus, was there were two different traditions. But, but Jesus's Jewish background clearly informs both what he taught and what Christianity is and became, even though it became a separate faith. So if it nourishes you, I think that's great. It was fun an introduction to the Bible to pick up the Tanakh and say, here are the books. And people would say, why are they in the wrong order? Right. You know, that's or I mean, just the, the ordering mm-hmm. and the story it tells, like, where does the story begin? Agreed. Where does it end? Different. You know, yeah. and it's just so... There's so much even in that to look at a, a table of contents and to say alike and different, which to me is uh, I don't, alike and different. Part of the complexity of both testaments that we have a hard time with is the violence in both testaments and what yeah. to do with that in David's story and plenty of it in the Second Testament as well. Uh, it's a really violent time in Memphis. To really, uh, the city's hurting right now, and I wonder if there are ways into our story that either you have found a way into into the waste place of violence in the world through these sacred texts that might give us a way to understand where we are. Does that question make sense at all? Um, oh, Scott, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Hebrew Bible has some really savage 
parts, which among other things, by the way, reminds us how savage human beings have been. And one of the things that it also, in a way, gives us some hope for is, in, in this is like what Steven Pinker writes about a lot, the most violent city in the world right now is not a quarter as violent as medieval London or medieval Paris or medieval any other city. And the world has gotten a great deal less violent as a whole, um, our, obviously our capacity for violence, nuclear weapons and so on has, has grown enormously, but we have actually gotten less violent over time. And I think of that, I mean, I think of these as different stages um, of humanity and there were always people who tried to lead us out of it. Um, but I don't think, I, you know, as the psychologists say, the only way out is through. And I don't think we could get to a better place without recognizing and labeling and feeling the violence that has preceded it. I'll just, uh, like, I'll give, you, I'll give you one example. I'm gonna talk about Moses tomorrow in a different way. I'm gonna talk about three biblical figures in a certain way, but I'm not gonna say this now. But I will just remind you that when Moses comes out of, the, of Pharaoh's palace, before he becomes chosen as a leader, before God comes to him at the burning bush, he has three experiences. The first one is he sees an Egyptian hitting a Jew, and he kills the Egyptian, intervenes, kills the Egyptian. The second one is that he sees two Jews fighting and he breaks up that quarrel. And the third is he goes to Midian and he sees shepherds um, oppressing a Midianite woman and he stops that. So Moses already lets you know, I don't accept violence between a non-Jew and a Jew, between two Jews or between two non-Jews. Hmm. And that's the, that's the prelude to his becoming Moses. Mm -hmm. So there are those sort of shafts of light in the midst of the darkness. Never thought of that before. I would just be filling air with things to say to you, except I embrace scripture as the story of things that didn't work and are ugly and ended up deadly, as well as like it's full of stuff that didn't work and that hurts to this day to see it. And it's preserved. And I read scripture as a book written by people who were about their experience with the divine. So I also read us into every word, even when we're saying God saith. So I used to tell Religion 101 students, I wish they would take Psychology 101 first and then come to Religion 101 so that they could parse the ways ego, self-preservation, the choice between fear and faith gets wrapped into our religious proclamations and defenses and et cetera. So I believe we have violence because of persistent, deadly inequality, injustice, and fear, and that that's not going to go away. But we do have the capacity to change. So maybe in that somewhere there is an ability to deal with all that in a way that shows we have evolved. I do want to, as a coda to this, before I talk about how, pe how people can be good, I now like to say the reverse. <laughs> um, I always used to say, I, I did all these debates with, um, with atheists, with Hitchens and with Harris. And, I can't believe you did that. And <laughs> Dawkins, oh, they were, I had a great time. <laughs> I, I, learned, I learned a lot. These were very, very, anyway, but, and they always used to say all this bad stuff. Religion makes people do this bad stuff. And I said, anybody who thinks that people are basically good 
has never visited a playground. Really? Because so true. what happens when the new kid comes on the playground? Do the other kids go, oh, look, a new child. <laughs> Let us share our toys with him. <laughs> no, they say, get the new kid. Because we do have yeah. evolutionarily this trigger where we distrust the other. Yeah. We just do. And it has to be overcome which is why you need to teach kids, no, you have to be nice to this new kid, where that's not our natural instinct. And, and I always used to say that, that, that believing that everybody is a child of God is the only principle I know that makes every human being sibling. So big deal, we share genetics, who cares about that? But if you believe that actually you're my brother or sister because God is our parent, then, then I have like a real theoretical basis to treat you kindly. We have time for one more question. Anyone else? So speaking to the future of faith, we have a lot of different religions fighting for their survival. We have, you know, Muslims against Christians. We have Christians against Muslims. We have a lot of people against Jews because they got around us up every 80 years or so. But when we look at the future of faith and the rise of reason, and you mentioned going back to this transcendental philosophy of, you know, taking it out of the synagogue or taking it out of the church and putting it back in nature, where do we see the future of faith in God? I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but for me, that's always an incomplete sentence. Faith that what will, faith that God will do what? Faith, what is faith? I mean, we do have to kind of talk about what faith means, because I think if we surveyed 50 people, we get some really different answers about what it means to have faith in God. So I'm going to, I'll yield to my other discussion partners here, but I've just got a big question mark about what it means to have faith. It, to me, it means to trust, to trust the holy, to trust the sacred, that what, you know, so... I, I think we're, I mean, first of all, I, I, I could leave it there because that says it beautifully, but I also think we're, we're about to, unless very smart people are very wrong and it doesn't seem like they are, the world is about to change dramatically with AI, um, with artificial intelligence in ways that we can barely begin to imagine. Already, AI can do astonishing things that we never thought machines could do. So I think there's going to be challenges to faith that we can't anticipate and, and openings inside of faith and ways of thinking about faith that we can't begin to anticipate. Um, and so I don't know what the future of faith is, but I do believe that faith will continue to be, as opposed to a grand conceptual thing, something that we find in like another human being in, in moments of what we call grace in, in beauty, in all the things that people now find faith in. I think that in the future, that will probably be the predominant way that faith will continue to exist um, and that communities will come together to celebrate that, that faith. But mm. the future is there's a Chesterton, the Roman Catholic novelist, he mm -hmm. says, and beginning of one of his novels, it's either the man who was Thursday or the, or, or the Napoleon of Notting Hill. I don't remember which one. He says, what happens is there's a game called cheat the prophet. He <laughs> said, all these people come together and they make prophecies about the future. And then everybody waits very nicely until they die. And then they go and do the opposite. 
And, and that's basically what the future is. It's something that, that every prediction, it always confounds, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that answer. <laughs> you know, because, because then if I come back to you, and I think faith means will you go, though you don't know, mm-hmm. you know, with the, what the future of faith is, will you go anyway? Will you, will you come along? Will we do this together? You want to go with me? Let's see what the future of faith is going to be because it's just so alive and unpredictable. And the yeah. AI piece just scared me bad. Yeah, it's, very, it's very scary. It's very scary. It's unbelievable and frightening all at the same time. And working with college students, they, you know, a lot of them, not surprised at all, been, I mean, since Blade Runner, you know, have been expecting right. all of this to be <laughs> coming down the pike. And, yep. and I'm, that worries me too, that yeah. they're not worried. <laughs> <laughs> Help on term papers. <laughs> on that optimistic note. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Let's show our appreciation to Barbara and to David. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 100-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten preaching series coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into a beloved community marked by unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.